Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And this episode, we're going to discuss what's so funny about truth, justice, and the American way, the 13th episode of the fourth season of Supergirl, which is a title taken from a comic book story of the same name, which itself was based upon the title for the song, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, written by Nick Lowe. Hmm. And basically the concept behind this title is like in opposition to the idea that these values are like old fashioned or corny or laughable. And we kind of see that come into play in both the comic book story, What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way, and this episode. And in this episode of Supergirl, just like in the comic book story, we see the premiere of the group, The Elite, run by Manchester Black, which also features the comic book character of Menagerie. And the hat. And the hat. First time we're seeing him. And surprisingly, a Morai alien, which diverges from the comic book group. Oh, yeah. So... The elite are introduced as a kind of contraforce against the children of liberty. The elite are a group of extremists on the opposite side of the children of liberty. However, there's a lot less like depressing reality fatigue <laughs> when watching the elite. Yeah, they're a little bit more removed from the depressing parts of reality in terms of extremism. Yeah. So they're more entertaining to watch. Yeah, it's, it's not as close to home. The fact that one of them has a snake friend emerging from their body probably helps with that. <laughs> and then someone else has a magical Mary Poppins hat. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, so I have a friend who likes to root for villains, and he's not enjoying the season <laughs> in terms of liking villains because it's, you know, the children of liberty are not... <laughs> You should root for the Nazis! Yay! Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and with the elite, there's more room for them to be, like, fun to watch and have interesting lines, and they let them look cooler for obvious reasons. Well, and they're also <laughs> leaning more into kind of the, the sci-fi fantasy elements of the show and the genre, as opposed to mm -hmm. the Children of Liberty, who are a little bit more pulled from reality. Yeah. Even though Agent Liberty was adapted from a comic, they diverged a lot. This feels more like a group pulled from the pages, <laughs> ripped from the headlines versus pulled from the pages of the comic book. Yeah, so Manchester comes in at the start of the episode and he makes it clear very quickly that the elite are here to dispense their own version of justice, kind of like we saw Rain do last season, which mm -hmm. obviously wasn't cool. <laughs> but one of the most interesting lines that he says, which Eric Carrasco went of the writers of this episode kindly pointed out mm -hmm. on his Twitter is Manchester says that he's through giving these devils the benefit of the law. And that's a reference to a play called A Man for All Seasons, which is also a film. And it is about one of our favorite topics to discuss, history. <laughs> So it's kind of amusing because the play A Man for All Seasons happens to be about this man named Thomas More, who was a confidant of King Henry VIII. The reason that this line, I'm through giving these devils the benefit of the law, is important is it emphasizes some of the themes that are happening in this episode of the show. The play itself is very focused on how we understand our personal identity and act according to our conscience. And there's a really heavy message about anti-authoritarianism and anti-corruption. So the main message in it is that it's really important to stand by your principles rather than cave in and go with the flow of what everybody else is 
doing when you know it's wrong just because that's convenient. Mm-hmm. So like the history behind this is that Henry VIII is tired of his first wife because she isn't giving him a son. He's like, I want to get a new wife so I can have a son. The Catholic Church does not allow divorce. His first wife was from Spain. They had really close ties to the Catholic Church. She was a super devout Catholic. The Pope was like, I'm not going to annul your marriage and pretend it never existed because I like your wife. <laughs> so the conflict arises because Henry leans into this idea that a lot of monarchs of the Middle Ages and the early modern period had, which is that their right to rule comes from God and therefore they are subject to the authority of no one else and they can do whatever they want. So he's like, okay, I'm going to ditch you and become the head of my own church and then I can grant my own divorce. Mm -hmm. And so within the context of this play, Man for All Seasons, Thomas More starts out as a confidant to the king, but he is also very devoutly religious and he refuses to condone what the king is doing. And he ends up being brought before parliament on a bunch of trumped up charges, thrown in jail and eventually executed publicly for refusing to go along with the king and his followers. So the context for this particular quote from the play that Manchester references to Kara, it's spoken by an antagonist in the play, which is mm-hmm. hint number one, <laughs> the elite are not the good guys. Yeah. And it's spoken to Moore, who is the hero of the story, just like Manchester says it to Kara. And the context of this conversation is that basically someone is saying, if I was trying to stop the devil, I would cut down every law in existence in order to get rid of him. And Moore says, okay, but if you get rid of all of the laws just to chase the devil, then what's left to protect you when the devils turn around and come back at you? Basically, his point is, and this is true in pretty much all forms of Republican government, laws are there specifically because they protect everyone from the dangers of extremism, whether it comes from the left or the right. So if you get rid of any sense of law or ethical standards in terms of how you persecute a criminal, what happens when the definition of a criminal changes and suddenly it's you instead of someone who's like, everyone can agree they're objectively bad. Mm -hmm. And that's where the danger of groups like the elite or other vigilantes come in. So like Manchester and the elite have a point about the children of liberty being a problem and the children of liberty are the kind of extremist group that doesn't really back down unless there's clear pressure forcing them to do so. So whether that be like an army or lawsuits coming after them and throwing them all in jail or, you know, intimidation by violence, they do need a counterweight. However, your problem with the elite is that they are still very much not heroes. Manchester even admits this and Menagerie says it too. The hat is like just there for the fun of it. They aren't on anybody's side. They're there out of self-interest. They have no ethical principles, really, and they have no loyalty to anyone but themselves. Mm -hmm. And the other reason that this is important is that I think a lot of people, particularly in Western countries like the United States, Northern and Western Europe, forget that you can have very dangerous extremism on the left as well as the right. Like, we're so used to this idea that if you're in opposition, 
opposition to, you know, like the Trumps of the world, then you are on the side of good. And that's not true. If you look at like the French Revolution, for example, they swung from like liberty and equality to what was called the reign of terror, where they actively beheaded thousands of people mm-hmm. within the span of like three years. The reign of terror is a kind of self-explanatory, <laughs> it's a solid name to give you the gist. Yep. And then you see in the 20th century, for example, knowing that we have Red Sun Kara coming up, the Russian Revolution was a revolution from the left that turned into a dictatorship. For those of you who pay attention to the news and the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, Venezuela also started out as a liberal left-wing political movement and also turned into an oppressive dictatorship. So Mm -hmm. you shouldn't be rooting for these people. And while we shouldn't root for them, they are interesting to watch. You had some observations about them sort of symbolically. Yeah, they're really kind of fascinating because throughout this episode, Manchester specifically makes so many references to British history and specifically the period at which Britain was empire building. And the Children of Liberty have already been cast as kind of like identifying with the revolutionaries in the American Revolution against the British. So you now have these two opposing forces both kind of falling in with that symbolism because you have Manchester and the hat are both British. They call themselves the elite. (laughs) They literally show up in the United States and start murdering people from the government. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they're also kind of subverting this idea that they represent like the empire ideals at the same time because you have Menagerie, who is the American in the group, stealing the crown jewels of England and then wearing them and being like, yeah, awesome. And then all of them are minorities in some way and people who would have been mistreated under the British colonial system. So there's a really neat kind of double layer of symbolic stuff going on. Yeah. And then on the other side, we have Lockwood and the Children of Liberty, and they're sort of soaked in revolutionary imagery. So they are the extremists on the right and equally violent, but, you know, also xenophobic. So yeah, on the scale of bad to really bad, they're definitely like at the bottom. Yes, the bottom being really bad. (laughs) The bottom being the worst. (laughs) And then we have Kara, Supergirl. Floating high above the rest. (laughs) Exactly. And so we see her at the beginning of this episode, and she's on her like sixth article about Lockwood because he was just released from jail. And she talks about how she feels like she's screaming into the void. And then later on in the episode, we see that she feels like she has to choose a side. So Manchester and the elite are killing like racists and children of liberty and people in the military. And when the hat breaks Manchester out of prison, they kill just prison guards. So they're racking up a lot of carnage. But Manchester brings the information to Supergirl that the government is launching a satellite that will shoot any alien spacecraft that tries to enter their atmosphere. So that could be anybody, refugees like Kara. But she feels like because she's this huge symbol of hope and goodness and everyone's eyes are on her, whichever thing she does, if she goes and destroys the satellite 
or if she doesn't, either she'll appear as if she supports the elite and what they're doing, or if she doesn't get rid of the satellite, she'll send a message to the Children of Liberty. So basically the idea that I have to be either far left or far right, but she personally does not support either of those positions because she doesn't want to kill anybody. Yeah, the way Kara is stuck here in the sense of feeling trapped by how she's a symbol to people is a little similar to the Guardian dilemma that James was facing earlier on in the season where he wants to go out and help people because it's the right thing to do, but he's aware that if he does, it's going to be used for propaganda that he vehemently disagrees with. And Mm -hmm. Kara's recognizing that her image can be manipulated potentially in the same way, which again is an interesting idea to plant knowing that we have second Kara who could possibly come in and also start causing problems for Supergirl's reputation. Yeah. And we've seen across the season how like publicity comes into play and how the things that Kara does as Supergirl specifically can be twisted like we saw with Lockwood. So she knows it's a real possibility that whatever she does will mean something that she doesn't want it to mean to people. So Kara, not knowing what to do as Supergirl goes to Alex for advice, Alex who does not know that she is her sister anymore. As we know, Kara likes to ask her loved ones and people that she trusts what she should do when she's torn. So she goes to Alex and it kind of reminded me of when in season two, Kara was upset about learning that her father had created a device to kill every species on Krypton that wasn't Kryptonian. So foreigners. Yes. (laughs) And now we have this satellite, which will shoot down any alien that tries to come to Earth. So ultimately, she decides to take Alex's advice. She says, look, you can only do what you feel is right. And so she destroys the satellite, but also just before it saves the president. And it was interesting because at the end of the episode, we get that sort of full circle reporting moment, not in the sense that Kara has published an article and now we see the consequences, which is something I'm hopefully looking forward to seeing, but in the sense that Kara goes from feeling like she's screaming into the void and writing, you know, six articles to then at the end of the episode continuing <laughs> to scream into the void. She's kind of like, I've got another article to write. And it's this sort of hopeful, like, yeah, I'm going to climb up this hill forever moment, which was nice. So Alex's advice to Kara of like, you can only do what you feel is right, sort of encapsulates one of the major themes of the episode, you know, of these moral dilemmas that all the characters are facing. So Alex's advice is sort of on the the hero's side. And then on the side of the elite, we have Manchester saying it's a bad time to be a good man. Yeah. And so you have Alex on the one hand and Manchester on the other, kind of representing those two conflicts that we just talked about in the use of man for all seasons, where you have to either choose to stand by your principles and do what you think is right, or just follow along with the social atmosphere and whether that's good or not. And that's kind of Manchester's attitude. Yeah. So it's sort of like, do you succumb to external pressures to do morally corrupt things in order for maybe like an ends justifying the means sort of thing and like concern yourself with the effects of what other people think about you and and that sort of external pressure? Or do you follow your own internal moral code, which is something we see heavily across all the characters? Yep. So almost every character in the episode was dealing with one of the major moral conflicts of the story in one way or another. And as you kind of already said, Alex gets pulled in to Kara's 
moral dilemma. <laughs> she does. And spends a little bit of the episode weighing whether or not she should interfere with what's going on with this satellite launch and whether or not it's the right thing to do. And this was neat to see because it was the first kind of in-depth one-on-one we had between a Supergirl and an Alex who no longer has all those really positive associations with Supergirl and who also isn't like, I need to help my sister because she's my family and that's how I show love to people. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) So we got a little bit more insight into how Alex thinks about the world separate from how she associates it with her family. Yeah, because we've talked a lot about how her moral center is often exactly where her family is <laughs> and protecting them. And um, so now we get to see what Alex relating to the external world morally looks like. Yeah. And her first reaction to what Supergirl tells her is, wait a second, is that even legal? Which A plus accuracy, because your first guide of whether or not something is right to do is the United States Constitution. <laughs> and everyone of these agencies has lawyers who tell you if your procedures and the things you want to do are legal or not. So that was an excellent little bit of insight into her as a leader of a government organization. But on the other hand, the other part that was interesting is then Kara recognizes that, okay, she can maybe persuade Alex to help her. And so she kind of says, okay, well, you know, can't you do something? Throw your weight around, get involved. And then Alex says, you know, if I show up, I would jeopardize my position and the whole organization would be at risk. So these sort of going back to the idea of like external factors. But then it's like Alex is in this position at the DEO. And we've talked about in a couple podcast episodes, like anticipating things going south there and how Alex being there is an important thing. So just as a viewer, having that sense of like, you're needed there. But then if Alex does everything she can just to remain there, as opposed to, you know, affecting any change in any situation, then it's like, what's the point? If you can't use the position you're in to do anything to affect any change, then you might as well not have the position. Yeah. And it was a nice nod to one of the last conversations that Alex and Kara had before the mind wipe, where Kara reminded Alex that she's really the moral center of the DEO because of this whole ambiguity with what Baker's government is doing. (laughs) And so we got to see that reflected in Alex's ultimate decision because she recognizes on her own that the government is corrupt in a way that she can't necessarily predict or control, but she's got to do something to kind of fight against that. Yeah. So a different way in which her position has become not useful sort of being shut out of the conversation. Like Alex says to Haley, I would appreciate being part of the conversation. Plot twist, though. So would Colonel Haley, who was... (laughs) Uh, clearly very dismayed that mm. her former BFF, President Baker, went and made all these decisions about defense strategy without consulting the agency in charge of handling these kind of threats. Yeah. When we were introduced to Haley, she was sort of like the person looming over the president and whispering in his ear. And now she's been cut. It's like a nice little arc where she has been cut off from that communication that she had with the president. So. Yeah. And the other thing that's really great about the way that they showed this moral conflict on Alex's side of it is that we got to see that she still made the decision to intervene, but that this time it was based on her own principles without feeling obligated to do it just because it was Kara asking her. And it's really important that she ends up making the same choice we would have expected her to make anyway, because the showrunners have said before that the mind wipe, it doesn't change a person's intentions. It doesn't change who they 
they are at at heart. Mm-hmm. And when Alex shows up, she's like, well, I did what I thought was the right thing to do. And it's the exact same thing she would have done anyway. She swoops in and saves her dad and, <laughs> and then yeah. helps Kara. <laughs> it's, it's sort of, it goes back to that idea that we talk about a lot with Alex where she will break the rules if <laughs> she yes. thinks that she needs to, um, which takes us to the end of the episode with Alex and the moral choice that she makes, the decision to kind of get in on it with Lena and and the stuff that she's doing. So Lena has signed on to work with the government, but in a very limited way. Mm -hmm. She has all the information on how to basically make people superhuman. It's products, not procedures. So the government won't have the information to be able to recreate it and do it themselves. They'll just have the end result. And so it's an interesting choice because in the last episode, we saw that she had decided to work with the government, which we were like, oh, that's interesting because Lena likes to have control of the stuff that she creates and in general. And she clearly negotiated her way into still retaining control over everything that she does. <laughs> Which it's funny because, like we said, her working with people and having like oversight would be a good thing normally. But with the sort of current administration, it's concerning. And then we have Alex, who would be sort of a check for the people who would abuse that kind of technology. She's realizing that she is not the government and she has less of a role than she should have and doesn't have the kind of say that she would expect. So we're seeing that people are being pushed out of the conversation. So the government itself does not have that kind of oversight in a way. So the government only works basically when people are listened to. So Alex decides to work with Lena because she's realizing that we don't have that same level of checks and balances within the government. And is the satellite even legal? (laughs) Who knows? And then speaking of questions about whether things are legal, we have... (laughs) James wrestling with his own moral dilemma about things that may or may not be entirely legal. (laughs) He, over the course of this episode, is recognizing that maybe he's betrayed his own kind of inner sense of ethics by telling Mackenzie not to look into her story about Lena's research and he put it aside for personal reasons. But his moral conflict is whether or not he's been making all of these decisions for the right reasons, basically. Yes. And so at the end of the episode, Cara takes the advice that Alex gave her that Alex also took herself. (laughs) So there's this uh, spread of the same advice of like doing what you think is right and examining your own motives and, and what you believe. And James does that and decides that the right thing, in his opinion, is to pursue asking those questions about Lena's research. So we'll presumably see where that leads. We sure will. (laughs) Maybe that will give you the journalism story you so desire. (laughs) Well, James is doing it. (laughs) Well, but that could also lead to some interesting Kara and James conflict, potentially. From the promotional images, and we just had the image of Kara and James talking, I thought maybe he was sort of breaking the news to her about what Lena decided to do. So that whole dynamic will be interesting. It sure will. Sort of see the fallout of Kara being their like matchmaker. I hope he tells Kara before that article goes to press. Imagine her reaction. Oh, man. It's really just a question of who's going to end up telling Kara first, James or Alex. Yeah. Although Alex is like in on the secret in a way. I don't know. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Yeah. But we also have that tidbit from one of the interviews with the showrunners as well of saying that it was really important that Alex did stay at the DEO and that it was the right choice to make. So yeah, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) 
So we saw Carr give James some advice, and Jean in this episode came to Carr for advice as well, which was neat because it was a sort of flip on the last episode in which Jean went to Kara to try to help her because she was upset about the situation with Alex and feeling disconnected from her, which is something that we talked about in the Jean podcast and their relationship and their sort of reciprocal advice. We also talked about in that podcast how they sort of let each other go on suicide missions occasionally. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they It's like they have that kind of understanding of each other. Kara says in this episode, I've made up my mind like about going to the elite to see Manchester who told her to come alone. And she says, you can't convince me to change it. And he's like, I know you better than that. That was a nice sort of continuity for their relationship. And when Jean asks Kara for help, he talks about how he has this duality in him that's at war, sort of this cognitive dissonance, where he has these two ideas that are conflicting within him at the same time. He says he wants to be a man of peace, just like his father, but every fiber of his being is fighting against that. That was interesting, his fiber of his being fighting against it. And a couple other quotes, he said, being a manhunter was part of my nature. I think Manchester can feel the rage that lies within me, the rage born of the massacre of my family. That was interesting in terms of this question of like, does Jean fear that like he's innately violent or does he feel deeply that sometimes he needs to be violent to help someone or affect positive change? Hmm. So there's this question of what Jean do you personally feel? He talks about wanting to be a man of peace like his father. Is that about wanting to be like his father and honor his father? Or is that because he thinks his father was right in, in his beliefs? Mm, yeah. And when Kara gives her advice to him, she says, well, if you choose to join the fight to bring the elite to justice, I'm sure your father would understand. So it kind of gives that room of like, depending on what you want, whatever it is that you feel is right, it will be okay. Yeah. To go back to kind of that same theme that all the other characters were dealing with of having to decide for themselves, like, what's the right thing to do? Yes, exactly. And that was interesting because you can kind of tell that she would like him to <laughs> join the fight. Father, please. <laughs> I need an adult. <laughs> But she also tries to make sure that he knows that it's his decision. And it was also interesting in terms of her framing it and being aware that he is concerned about what his father wants, because in the last episode, she discussed with Nia what Nia's mother would want for her and used that as a way to encourage her to become a superhero. And she said to ask herself what she thinks her mother would want her to do. So Kara sort of recognizing in her space fam something that she feels personally a lot of the time of like wanting to honor her parents. And sort of speaking of Jean's parent, Marin, a concept that we saw pop up in season three with Marin popped up again in this episode. Jean says, Manchester was a test for me, but whether he's a test of my resolve or just a mirror showing me that I cannot walk my father's path, I just don't know. The idea of a test is something we saw when we first met Marin. Marin talked about how their god, the god of the Green Martians, Ronmir, tested his children and gave them a choice of a staff, like a weapon or a book, sort of a symbol of wisdom. Mm. And the one who chose the staff became the White Martians, and the one who chose the book became the Green Martians. So obviously, Jean has concerns. <laughs> yes. And so he seems to have, like we've discussed, this outward concern, like, what does Ronmir want from me? What would my father want from me? What is right for me as a Green Martian? And he's looking outward as opposed to trying to figure out himself and examining what he believes is the right thing. And we saw at the end of the episode, he is physically violent with Manchester, which is a break from the result 
result of the comic book story, What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way. Yep. So his moral dilemma that he's facing towards the end of the episode is whether or not he should be violent towards Manchester because he recognizes that Manchester is intentionally kind of trying to push him toward violence, A, because he likes to create chaos, and B, because Manchester himself is in so much pain that Jean says, you know, he has a death wish. (laughs) And at the end of the episode, Jean does cave in, at least momentarily, to being violent in a way that we don't see him be very often. And he physically beats Manchester pretty badly. So we don't quite know yet was Jean's realization at the end of the episode about trying to figure out what he should do. A setback in the sense that he realized he made a mistake and he might give up? Or is it a step forward in recognizing like he's learning how to understand himself better and he's going to be able to find his own path that will honor his father but also be more true to himself yeah who is john jones <laughs> what are you what are you feeling john well and we did get that little brief clip of him praying in his martian robes at home mm. at the very end of the episode so it was kind of like he was trying to meditate like we've seen him do a bunch of times and figure out what he should do next so yeah. i'm genuinely curious i am too to see where it will go so the big thing as we said in this episode was people trying to just act according to their own moral codes mm-hmm. And so far, we've talked about kind of what all our heroes chose to do. But on the other hand, we also have some not-so-great people who are acting according to their moral codes, or lack thereof in some (laughs) cases. And uh, one of those people was President Baker, who we are getting more insight into. And I actually really like what they're doing with him. So interesting. Yeah. We mentioned in the last episode that he has like two TVs in the Oval Office. So he's very concerned about his public image and has been this whole time and and polls and such. So he in this episode is sort of a counterpoint to Kara, who is also concerned about her public image in a way because she's a symbol and what she does means something to people. But unlike Kara, who ultimately decides to do what she thinks internally is right, Baker just goes by whatever will make him look good. And we see this concept of like publicity really played up in the episode. He invites Lockwood to the Oval Office for pictures. And when he sees him, he says, I like your show, son, emphasizing that he <laughs> he's a television figure to him and he's concerned about that specifically. Well, yeah. And if the show is popular, he's you know, after Lockwood because he's a public figure who will make him look cooler. Mm, Yes. And this is not an unfamiliar look on a president. (laughs) Sure isn't, Cycles. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of how sometimes the storyline gets a little uncomfortably close to reality, in case you've somehow missed the fact that the United States currently has a president who's obsessed with his own image, literally and figuratively, Uh, (laughs) They've done a very clever job of swinging Baker around into a politician who has some of Trump's qualities. Mm -hmm. And when I was thinking about it a little more, I decided he's kind of like if you fused Trump's obsession with his own image and Mike Pence's ability to do politics and like the charm of Joe Biden. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And so this is a horribly dangerous thing. <laughs> this, When you said that to me, <laughs> I was disturbed and knew immediately in my heart that you were right. <laughs> 
Mm. Yeah, because essentially what you have now in Baker is a narcissist who actually understands how the government works. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike our current president, Mm. which means that he's someone whose only motivation is doing things that look good for himself, but he also knows how to play the system to get what he wants effectively Mm -hmm. and to make it look okay on the surface instead of, you know, this person who is so uninterested in understanding how politics works that he doesn't cover his tracks. Uh, (laughs) And so it makes it easier to stop him. Hopefully. Yeah. In theory. (laughs) But one of the other ways that the show played up this intentional similarity between our real president and this fictional president is you see Baker emphasizing that the things he values are belief in America and (laughs) loyalty, but like loyalty to him because he's saying this to Lockwood on the heels of Kara telling him that, you know, he did something wrong and it was bad. Mm. And so he views Supergirl as being disloyal to him and to his interests. And he's also concerned because she's not part of the government. So she's beyond his control. Yeah. It's interesting because we have a few characters here who are concerned with having their like own power and, and people being loyal to them specifically. Mm. Yeah. We also got another little bit of insight into the way Baker's perspective on Supergirl has evolved when he says that he won't apologize for protecting his country Mm -hmm. and he's intentionally excluding her from belonging to that country, even though she's made it very clear that it's her home too and that she values the things that the United States stands for as well. And that othering sort of sly statement is kind of similar to what he said to Supergirl when he was leading up to trying to get her to reveal her identity when he said the thing about what the people want and Mm. Kara was like are you implying that aliens aren't people so that interesting kind of subtle hint of xenophobia yeah and it also is a good insight into understanding why baker keeps pushing towards this path towards the right-wing extremists even though it doesn't seem like it should make sense because he was the vice president under marsden and clearly that wasn't his political platform to start with i mean marsden was the one who created the Alien Amnesty Act. So it's a different look on him, presumably. Yeah. And so it's also curious to see, speaking of, you know, things with the journalism angle, that there hasn't been more questioning of like why the president suddenly did a 180 between when he was the vice president and now. Yeah. The other nice little thing that they did within this conflict between Baker and Kara and showing Baker's hand as far as his moral values was they used the satellite as a stand-in for like Trump's border wall. It was actually really funny because they even had Baker yelling about how much it cost. Mm, Yes. And it's interesting, this sort of collection of things that are like Trumpish, but not super on the news. Like, for instance, in season one, we had the senator who was like, we'll build a dome if we have to, which is like a literal stand-in for the border wall. And then you had that kind of like way too on the nose and out of context speech from Maggie's dad about like anti-human immigrants that the show had never talked about that subject before. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it was just there. (laughs) Yes. So this has been close, but feels like a story as opposed to like a replication of everything that they see (laughs) that's happening in America. (laughs) Yeah, which is probably a good thing because presumably they'll find a way to conclude this story where the rest of us are just going to have to wait in suspense. Uh, Yeah. How do you solve racism and xenophobia in America, Supergirl? How do you solve a problem like 
um, everything. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of narratives that are similar to what's happening in America, we obviously have Ben Lockwood, the agent of liberty. He is also concerned with his public image in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So his dilemma, to kind of go back to the themes that I mentioned earlier that were being built in through that reference to Man of All Seasons, is a little bit more similar to Jean's in that he's really looking at his sense of identity and who he is at his core and whether that is being accurately reflected in what he's doing or if he's kind of going with what people are encouraging him to do. Mm. So we see him throughout this episode. He repeatedly mentions feeling like he's being kind of haunted by his father. And even when he goes to visit the president, the president brings up his father through mentioning, you know, FDR and like workers unions. And Lockwood's problem is that he started the Children of Liberty in this very in touch with the people, really visceral kind of way of expressing anger and frustration kind of violently. Mm -hmm. But since then, he's retreated back into the spaces where he is comfortable, which is he's an academic. He used to be part of the social elite, essentially. And he's been striving to obtain legitimacy from those groups of people. Mm. And so now he's being confronted with the fact that a lot of people aren't happy with him taking this turn back toward that path that he was on until he started the Children of Liberty. And he's also feeling like he's betraying, you know, the people in his family. His father resented him for being part of academia. Yeah. So we see in this episode the Grace's stranger approaches Lockwood in a bar. And that interaction was interesting in terms of him sort of emphasizing, like, here's the thing, professor, and obviously has feelings about that title. But also we see again in this exchange, the concept of toxic masculinity and a professor in comparison to, you know, the rest of his phrase. When this whole thing started, you were downright scary. And that was apparently a good thing. Yeah. So this sort of violent concept of who he thinks that Lockwood should be juxtaposed with the mixed drink that Lockwood was drinking. And the guy makes a point to order Jack three fingers as sort of like a, I have a manly drink. <laughs> what are you drinking? Yeah. And they also play up the visual differences in terms of the costuming and, you know, the other guy's got like the beard and he looks a little bit more like folksy, if you will. Whereas you have Lockwood in his suit and he's had a haircut and he's got like the gel and he's all styled and yeah. And then we see with Lockwood in the scene with the president, when the president says, all you got to do is look pretty for the cameras, sort of that emphasis on him looking nice as it being an unmanly thing. Yeah. Well, and then also the subtext of the president doesn't actually care about his ideology or any of the reasons that Lockwood's actually there. And <laughs> that blindsides him a little bit because here he was coming into this meeting thinking like, oh, I have the ear of the president. I can push my agenda through and blah, blah, blah. And the guy's like, I just want a photo op with you because you're popular. <laughs> <laughs> but we see that Lockwood wearing a suit does not prevent him from being really viscerally violent, which was a sort of interesting and disturbing image at the end of the episode. Yeah. And it was actually a nice counterpoint to uh, Jean's kind of hitting Manchester. Mm, yeah. 
So Lockwood kind of goes from being really concerned about what his father would think about what he's doing and what his family thinks and what the Children of Liberty think. So he ultimately decides to lean into the violence to take his place back in the position that he wants to be in, which is an interesting shift from what he said that he wanted. Yeah. And this kind of goes back to how he started out as as a history professor and he's making all these allusions to like the great ideals of, you know, the founding of America and blah, blah, blah. And when he started this, he really emphasized that he wanted it to be a movement of the people in the way that a lot of like the Enlightenment inspired revolutions were. And he's got this whole like, we are all agent liberty. Mm-hmm. But then he's realizing, much like the uh, leaders of the French Revolution, that when you have a democracy... That means you have to listen to everybody's opinion, even when it's not what you want them to do and it doesn't agree with yours. And that's the reason that, like, the United States is not a direct democracy. (laughs) The founders of the United States did not trust the will of the people. That's actually why we have a representative government, Mm -hmm. because they were concerned about this kind of, like, mob rule problem. And so Lockwood at the end is recognizing, weirdly, like the early United States, that you need a centralized authority. But this is also a sign of when revolutions tip over into like authoritarianism, mm-hmm. where you get the leadership centered around a strong man and there's a lot of violence. So he decides that rather than let these people subvert his authority and kind of push away from his agenda, he's going to assert his dominance, if you will. Mm-hmm. And take back control over the Children of Liberty in a way that will pacify these people who think he's not being violent enough and also allow him more freedom to kind of do things his way. Yeah. Speaking of violence and doing things your way. Yep. (laughs) We have the elite into their, well, they don't quite have a dilemma. They're making their choices regarding morality. We've kind of talked about how none of them have like a concrete ideological motive, kind of like Kara or Jean or even Lockwood in his own weird way. Well, Manchester, we know, used to have an ideological concept that he was behind the whole Ahimsa thing. Mm -hmm. And he's very dramatically directly going against that and being violent. So we know that he, because of his own words, does not perceive of himself as being a good man. He doesn't think that his actions are following his own internal moral code. He's just doing that anyway (laughs) and has that concept of the outward effects of what I'm doing are more important than whether or not it's right. Mm Mm-hmm. As you mentioned with the Man for All Seasons quote and message. And then we have Menagerie who's just there because she likes to steal things. She wants her bling. (laughs) Yeah. And then the hat is just there for the chaos of it all. For the aesthetic, I guess. (laughs) The Mora is probably the only one... Who really has a good reason to be there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because we also see with the elite, the concept of public image come up again. Mm-hmm. When Manchester is recording the video. To like harass Supergirl. <laughs> yeah. Um, she says, low angle, are you kidding me? And then at the end of the video says, like and subscribe. Worrying. <laughs> yeah. They have like a YouTube channel or something. <laughs> it's also just a little bit amusing given all the press that YouTube has been receiving lately for creepy stuff embedded in content for children. And then you also see that teenage girl coming to take a selfie with her. Yeah. There was like an audience there and like clapping and, you know, reacting to what they were saying when they stole the crown jewels. And Manchester signs off the one video 
video with now for a commercial break. And then if you're watching live, there was a commercial break, which I was amused by. Excellent breaking the fourth wall. (laughs) Yeah, which um, another way that the elite is enjoyable to watch Manchester's turns of phrase. Yes. And speaking of Manchester and his turns of phrase, we talked about this back when he had a big storyline in 408, which was the last episode before the crossover when he had his first big confrontation with Lockwood. Manchester uses a lot of references to literature, to film, to poetry, to the Bible. And It's a really interesting aspect of his character because there's a lot of layers of meaning to the things that he says. Mm -hmm. It's been fun to sort of dive into. In this episode, it was interesting because he made quite a few biblical references. Mm -hmm. He says toward the end of the episode, there's a reason it's called playing God. It's fun. Which, if you've ever played The Sims, it certainly is. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also kind of funny that that came up in this particular episode where you have Lena diving deeper into her work on creating superhumans because that emphasis on playing God also connects back to Alex accusing Lena of doing exactly that in the Thanksgiving episode. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about biblical references in general in conjunction with like Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. So that's been interesting. What I really liked this episode in terms of biblical references was when Manchester said about Kara and how she came to Earth in an alien spacecraft. He says, child in a basket, you know, real Moses stuff. Which was such a good choice. Yes, because the super mythos has a lot of roots in Judaism and was written by two Jewish children of immigrants. And Kara and Clark, you know, Kal-El, they have a lot of similarities in their story to the story of Moses. So that was really awesome to see. Yeah. Uh, Manchester continues with references to that story. He says, here's your chance to tell the bosses to let your people go, which is a phrase that Moses says to the Pharaoh in Exodus about, you know, freeing his people who were slaves. And in the story, God, because they wouldn't let the slaves go, sent the plagues. And then Manchester says, or else plagues will do it for you. So Manchester is connecting that scenario to the president standing for the Pharaoh using the satellite to attack any alien who tries to enter the Earth's atmosphere. And then if Supergirl doesn't get the president to stop the satellite from doing that, Manchester, who is playing God, will use the satellite to shoot a beam down from the sky to try to kill the president and everyone in the White House. Much like in his mind, God sent down the plagues to attack the pharaoh and those on his side. Indeed. And then he also has a a New Testament reference uh, to Jean. Which actually is interesting because he's made uh, references to like spirituals and stuff to Jean before as well. Mm, True. So Manchester says to Jean, go turn the other cheek um, after he attacks him at the military base. Basically, he's kind of mocking the fact that he knows that Jean is trying to live this life of nonviolence and saying like, that's right, you know I made you angry, so just let me keep hitting you again, essentially. Yeah. So tying back into the idea behind the title, what's so funny about Truth, Justice, and the American Way, and Manchester plays the role of the person who thinks it's funny. (laughs) Or that it's not worth doing. Yeah. Yeah. But Manchester didn't stop there with his uh, references. (laughs) No. He had this one quote where as soon as he finished saying it, I was like, oh no, because I'm going to have this song from Hamilton stuck in my head Mm -hmm. for the rest of the night. 
So when he's broadcasting his live stream and announcing his political agenda against the Children of Liberty, he says this statement, every action has its opposite and equal, which is similar in intonation and also very similar to a line from the Hamilton song, The Election of 1800, which starts off with every action has an equal opposite reaction. Mm -hmm. And the reason that this was kind of an amusing line to use in connection to that particular song is that it's focusing on on the collapse of an early political civility in the United States after the revolution has ended and the way that the politicians split into what we know of as our modern two-party system where it really feels like there are only two choices. You're either with the party or you're against them fighting for the other party. And that's very much the position that Manchester is advocating for. It's a very us or them. You have to pick a side and there is no in between. And anybody who thinks that you should be trying to compromise or talk to people is a sucker and they're stupid. So that was fun, even though I did have that song. (laughs) (laughs) And so related to that, within that same scene, Manchester makes this comment about Supergirl and the ideals that she stands for as saying that she's clinging to these ideals of a time long past, Mm -hmm. trying to say like, oh, it's so old fashioned. And in a way, slyly referencing the fact that the Superman story is 80 years old. And some people do think that it's outdated to believe in standing up for good and right things in a <laughs> in a nice way. But then immediately after that, he quotes Michelle Obama from a speech that she made two years ago. So it's like, how, how long past are we talking? I know that two years in the current US political climate does feel like time long past. But um, <laughs> It was a nice, ironic juxtaposition of those two things, like trying to say that Kara's beliefs are so old-fashioned and out of touch, but then referencing a modern politician who very much lives by that idea of saying, when other people go low, you take the high road and do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So that was nicely done, Yes, writing team. Good job. Which is a nice moment that sort of sums up one of the big themes of the episode. And he also references a sort of motif that we see in this episode with another line he says, no man is a failure who has friends. Yes, and he says this kind of again to mock Kara a little bit when he's got the elite showing up to help him break out of prison. Mm -hmm. And it was an interesting choice because it's a reference to the film It's a Wonderful Life, which is an old Christmas movie that's very cheesy in some ways. Mm -hmm. And the quote comes from a note that the main character in the story receives from his guardian angel reminding him that as long as he has connections to other people, he's not a failure because he means something to people. And that was very cleverly chosen because in a way you can kind of mentally connect that back to Kara's belief in appealing to the better angels of human nature that she mentioned a couple of times in season one, which is also relevant to kind of all the history and the political stuff that's going on this season because it's actually a line from Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address before the start of the Civil War and him talking about how eventually the better angels of human nature would win out and solve the big moral conflicts that were happening throughout the United States. So it's not surprising that that's something that Kara believes in. And the idea of this no man is a failure 
failure who has friends also kind of ties nicely to Kara's stronger together belief mm. as well. Yeah. And that's something we see within the episode and the various groups of people and connections and interpersonal relationships. Also, the delivery of the line was interesting because Manchester says, no man is a failure. And then the hat says, who has friends? And it's kind of an interesting moment of communication. They finish each other's <laughs> sandwiches. You don't like it, but you reference it a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Frozen, but I was around children who were obsessed with it. So, yeah. (laughs) So we see this motif of communication and interpersonal issues and also working together and that stronger together concept with various characters. We see, obviously, with the elite. And then we see on the other side, the super friends. Kara finally embraces the name that Wynne wanted to use. (laughs) Oh, Wynne. I miss Wynne. Same. The Super Friends comes into fruition with the addition of Nia as Dreamer. And in this episode, we see Nia and Brainy working together and also having some interpersonal and communication issues. Quite amusingly, yes. Yes. So they have a little bit of a disagreement throughout the training over whether or not Nia can find out anything about her powers or her own family because Brainy's concerned that if he tells her too many things that he knows from his experience working with Nura in the future that it could mess up the future. But Nia is frustrated because she's lost the only member of her family who can give her that heritage, which is a very nice kind of connection to her status as like the child of an immigrant. And she has no other way potentially to get that information and she feels like if she doesn't have it she can't maybe reach her full potential yeah and it's interesting that we see nia sort of longing for that and then also at the end of the episode brainy loses his legion ring which is sort of a symbolic connection to his home in the future with the legion so then connecting in terms of them sort of longing for a touch of home Mm -hmm. and then as they kind of grow a bit more honest in the way that they're communicating their emotions to each other. You see when they're fighting, they actually work together quite well. So Nia eventually kind of gets that information on her own through Kellex and she sort of tries to streamline right to the more advanced power stuff and tries Mm -hmm. to astral project. And Brainy sees this and ends up like endorsing it and saying like, despite the fact that that backfired, that they should fire forward and sort of taking risks and how that's a part of being a hero, which is interesting because we also have Kara and Alex who sort of took these big risks in order Mm -hmm. to do what they think is the heroic thing. And then Nia ends up helping Brainy at the end of the episode and fires forward mentally in terms of framing the loss of the ring. She says, it's not about how your ring was stolen, Brainy, it's about how we're going to get it back. Yeah, which was a nice nod to the way this show developed the theme of resiliency in the face of challenge. The emphasis isn't on fixating on what is lost, but on how you cope with that and move on. And that's something that is really fundamental to a lot of the characters. Mm So we see a lot of people giving advice to other people in this episode yeah, and helping each other guide themselves to what they think the right thing is. Um, And we also see Kara in her mentor role again with Nia and with Brainy as well. (laughs) (laughs) She discusses like how to lie with Nia about like making excuses about where to go. And it's funny because when Nia walks in, Kara has to come up with an excuse for Alex now. And she sort of stumbles and takes a second to figure out where their pretend appointment is 
which wasn't something that was super obvious because Kara has been awkward that whole conversation <laughs> in an amusing way. Well, Kara, as Kara Danvers, is frequently just goofy and yeah. awkward. Alex literally just called her embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, in the most adorably sibling-y way ever. Yes, I loved that a lot. And then she also mentions why that wasn't as smooth as it might have been. Otherwise, she says to Nia that she's still getting used to lying to Alex. Just to make us all feel sad. <laughs> yes, exactly. Although she does lie pretty well later on in the episode. Uh-huh. When the president <laughs> accuses her of destroying the satellite on purpose, as opposed to to save him and the people in the White House. She says, I assure you, sir, there was no other way. Yeah. And it was a nice handling in this episode to kind of go back to what we talked about in our discussion of Kara's glasses and her disguising of herself to look at the difference in how Kara lies as Kara and as Kara Danvers in particular particularly when like in this scene where she was caught by surprise a little bit versus when she's in Supergirl persona and she feels very confident and authoritative about what she's saying. So that's a really good one to look at in the differences in her body language, tone of voice, facial expression, etc. And how all of those things come together to create two very different people with very different styles of, of lying or telling the truth. And it also um, makes sense in terms of when you know you're going to lie <laughs> versus mm -hmm. when you're like, oh, I have to to come up with something now uh, which car is like pretty quick with the excuses yes she just it's like she forgets <laughs> and then she's like oh it's just a lie about things yeah <laughs> which makes it sadder <laughs> it does and speaking of things that were sad <laughs> and uh relationship dynamics in this episode and communication difficulties yeah we had yet another change to the intro narration with this episode and that one actually was sad <laughs> yeah in the past couple episodes there have been slight tweaks they cut out the fact that Kara works with the DEO because she doesn't anymore. And then they cut out that she works with her sister. And then this episode, they changed the narration to say, to most people, including my adoptive sister, Alex. Um, and they also changed <laughs> the... Uh, I, I said on the bright side, they finally fixed the grammatical yeah. error in that yes. part. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it's a bittersweet thing. <laughs> <laughs> and in this episode, we saw sort of what that dynamic looks like when it's just Supergirl and Alex and they're not arguing. <laughs> yeah, so we got a shift a little bit in that Kara had been lamenting that she and Alex were working, as I described it, adjacent to <laughs> each other as opposed to actually with each other. But this time, Kara found a solution. She found another way, as she and other relatives of hers like to say, <laughs> to work around that. And as Supergirl went to Alex to appeal to her, and it also gave us a little bit more insight into understanding what Alex does and doesn't remember. <laughs> and it is that she she remembers some of the things that happened with Supergirl, but kind of like we talked about in a, one of our previous episodes, all of the emotional context of it has been stripped away because all of that was always associated with Kara. Mm -hmm. So they're rebuilding in a different way. <laughs> Yeah, some of that same report. And you see that start to show itself over the course of this episode. So first of all, the fact that Alex no longer has this intense emotional association of my baby sister with Supergirl gives her room to act independently and figure out from her own set of values whether or not she thinks what Kara is asking her to do is right. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of them working together, 
now that they are communicating a little bit more normally with each other, you had this really clever contrast of um, Menagerie giving this little wink to Manchester when she took out Kara for him <laughs> versus later in the episode, you see Alex winking to signal to Supergirl that she's got Manchester under control and Kara can go do <laughs> her thing. And I also found that part really funny because going back to kind of Manchester and his use of language and all of that, in the Thanksgiving episode, he paid Eliza this comment using this really British slang that no one understood, but essentially complimenting Alex for being this like really tough, scrappy fighter of a person who succeeds a lot at what she does. But then he underestimates her <laughs> throughout their whole fight scene and she kicks his butt because of it. Mm-hmm. So like that was speaking of communication and understanding people. Um, also kind yeah. of funny. Yeah. So um, that whole exchange with Alex, Supergirl and Manchester was interesting. And, and Supergirl sort of makes eye contact with Alex and then triggers Alex into taking out Manchester and then throwing the suit onto Supergirl. So Which it was interesting that she, she anticipated that and realized that Supergirl was going to need it to mm-hmm go save the so satellite there's some premeditated uh <laughs> destroying of the satellite kind of like when she went to explode the cadmus base she came prepared <laughs> <laughs> did she have a cute little backpack <laughs> no but nia had one yes. <laughs> that whole sequence was awesome and you quite enjoyed alex's entrance oh my god yes <laughs> when the promo stills for this episode came out i was like i understand why alex is not included in the panel of the super friends as you know the contrast to the elite but i was a little sad about it Mm. and then surprise she does show up and she gets like the coolest entrance ever and the camera work is really great in this because they trick you into thinking it's Kara at first because you see the blue beam Mm -hmm. of light come and hit manchester but it's actually alex and it was a cool moment in that it also called back to number one her very first big hero entrance in the pilot episode huh. where she comes down from the sky huh. to like save Kara. But it also is reminiscent of the episode where she jumps in front of Jean when the White Martian attacks him and he freezes. Hmm. Other kind of nice callback to earlier seasons within that whole fight sequence and Alex helping Jean and then Kara. When she throws Kara the suit and then says, fly, it reminded me of in the pilot episode where she tells Kara that the world needs her to fly even when they're arguing and they're at a distance physically from each other because Alex is on the other side of the door and there's a barrier and she actually can't see Kara, (laughs) much like she doesn't totally see Kara now. That is interesting because this is sort of like a reset for Alex in terms of her relationship with Supergirl. Mm -hmm. And that was a moment of her being like, okay, I'm behind you with this Yeah, in the pilot episode. And now it's kind of like a, yeah. It's a nice symmetry. I was like, aw, yay. (laughs) And then similarly to that in terms of talking about relationship and the whole idea of no man is a failure who has friends. We see Alex maybe having other friends. (laughs) Um, Right. (laughs) So not only does she ultimately decide that she's going to support Supergirl, she also chooses to support Lena despite having some initial misgivings about the way Lena was conducting her research practices and mm. concealing a lot of information. And she specifically says, like, I'm your friend. And <laughs> I'm always happy when Alex has, like, friends <laughs> right? <laughs> that aren't, like, Kara or, like, people she only interacts with when she's with Kara. So, mm. like, having a friendship with someone without needing that sort of linchpin role of Kara is always good. 
And like for Kara too, in terms of who she emotionally relies upon and opens up to, it's nice to see her branch out in that respect. So we love the Danvers sisters when they rely upon each other, but it's always great to see them build their found families up in other ways. Yeah. And I also think that this decision that Alex is making here is going to be a little bit thematically critical to what will happen with Lena in the long run. When she comes back to Lena after the whole fallout of the thing with the satellite and finding out that Baker is not only withholding information from her, but also from Haley, she specifically says to Lena, I have a hell of a lot more faith in you than I do in them, which is reminiscent of the way that she affirmed that she had faith in Kara and Kara's mission in season one. And then she also specifically says that, no, she's here because Lena's her friend. Which calls back to the confession that Lena made to Kara in season three about how she feels like the only thing that separates her from her family and keeps her from tipping over the edge is that she has friends. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's going to get critically important (laughs) over the back half of the season. We'll have to see how that turns out in terms of Alex maybe being a positive force in that dynamic and usage of the superpower serum. Versus Eve the temptress. (laughs) (laughs) Although we saw with James, Lena did not take too well to hearing criticism from someone she's friendly with. (laughs) No, that's true. The other thing that was interesting within seeing Lena's dynamic with Alex when Kara is not present is um, Lena voices this very high respect for Alex and her intellect and particularly her knowledge of this area of science. So there is potentially room for Lena to be willing to listen. Given the fact that Lena is used to being like in the younger sibling role and Alex's big sisters, everybody, <laughs> there's room to have a smidgen of hope. <laughs> <sighs> I wonder how Alex is going to play into all this. Exactly. And presumably Lillian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That could make that could make Alex's involvement here fascinating. Oh, that would be interesting. <laughs> she hates Lillian a lot. Oh, <laughs> I'm so into this. <laughs> the whole dynamic. Just get the Danvers oh, and Eliza too. <laughs> I know. Just get like, the Danvers and the Luthers in the same room. I need my like Molly Weasley confronting Bellatrix the Strange moment there. <laughs> mm. Speaking of all those Harry Potter references that keep happening, <laughs> yeah. Let's see where that friendship with Lena goes. And Alex also had a friend interaction with James in this episode. Right? I think she's had like one independent friend interaction with James in like the entire series. And it was in For the Girl Who Has Everything when they were cheering about the fact that James brought like liquor. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and she pulled him aside in that same episode specifically about Kara trying to make sure that he would prevent Jean from ripping Alex out of the Black Mercy before car also was out yeah but you've said a lot to me that you want to see them interact more yes i've written about this on my blog as well i just there's untapped potential there and i hope that this is a hint that maybe we'll get a little Mm. of it in developing some kind of relationship for alex and james because they've been using them well as foils this season in a way that I think they've always been and it's just been kind of missed as an opportunity in the sense that they have very different ways of going about things, but they're equally very principled people. And the way that they are as heroes, I think, can be connected really interestingly to their connection to each super who is like their close friend because Alex has always known Kara as Kara and has always been part of 
Kara's hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Whereas James did not initially know Clark as Superman. And with James, there's still a little bit of that element of like the hero worship. And so I've always wanted to see more between Alex and James interacting because they have such different understandings of Kara. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of who Kara is and kind of what role she plays for her friends, but also for like society at large. They also have very different opinions about Clark. (laughs) They sure do. That was the thing I was really longing for in season two. Mm. I was like, I would have loved a a good scene of Alex and James kind of talking about Clark's relationship to Kara. James has a little bit of a like hero worship pedestal thing sometimes with him. Yep. And it kind of transferred to Kara a little bit at times. (laughs) But Alex, (laughs) as we saw in season two, Alex thinks on some level that Clark abandoned Kara. Because that's not what she would do. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Um, and it's a shame that they didn't include the scene in the season two premiere of James and Clark interacting. Yeah, that we know they filmed because there were pictures mm-hmm. of it. Because that would have been a nice sort of juxtaposition with how Alex interacts with Clark. <laughs> yeah. And then they're also interesting in terms of their view of government. True. Because we know that James has reservations about it and yes. also had criticisms for the DEO in the past. Well, for Kara and how she was using the DEO or allowing the DEO to proceed in the past. Yeah. Well, and actually it's funny because that episode specifically, which was Truth, Justice in the American mm. Way from season one, had James going to appeal to Kara's sense of ethics about something Alex did. Yeah. <laughs> so I would love to see them interact more. And I hope this is a hint that uh, we're going to see some more Danvers Olsen mm-hmm. character exploration because it's fascinating. Although that bit in Truth, Justice, in the American Way sort of reminds me of how Kara is not really <laughs> Truth, Justice, in the American Way because she's like, no, nope. I don't really care that much about the law. Yeah, James tried to appeal to that because Clark is so, he grew up very American and very middle American, which there's a very strong sense of independence and, you know, fending for yourself. <laughs> and Akara's like, I don't subscribe to those values, really. <laughs> and then it's, it is interesting, though, that we have this title of Truth, Justice, in the American Way in this episode where we're seeing that mm-hmm. the justice truth and the American way are like all under threat. Yes. So that's interesting. Well, it's also interesting that we know Clark is off world. And so Kara is a little bit stepping into that mantle that he also sometimes wears in terms of protecting those values because he's not here to help her either as a journalist or as Superman. And she doesn't have Lois Lane helping her out with the uh, writing articles about Lockwood. (laughs) Also true. But we see in this episode, again, how Kara, despite having to be that symbol, will Mm. go outside of that for her actual beliefs, which are hope, help, and compassion for all. And if the justice system is not compassionate, then she's not going to be behind it. Yep. Which I think we talked about this in one of our previous episodes, too, is such a nice contrast to um, Allura in her conflict with Astra. Yeah. So lots of really interesting uh, interwoven concepts. And a lot of building on character dynamics and character development that has happened throughout the series, which was very cool. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of new content in terms of interactions because we had Alex and James. And then now we have James and Brainy and they get brunch. I know. That was so cute. Yeah. Gar said that. She's like, cute. (laughs) which I really appreciated (laughs) for some reason. I would like to see James and Brainy interact on screen. Yeah. 
we'll get there. Just to see what that dynamic <laughs> looks like now that they've gotten to know each other more. And I, I want, I want them to be out at brunch with no context and then they have to run away from brunch to then go solve a problem. Oh, that would be so fun. <laughs> like a superhero leave. Like, I don't know. That really amuses me. <laughs> yeah. I just want everybody participating in their own superhero type shenanigans. <laughs> That's what's important, really. That's what keeps it fun <laughs> in the midst of all this horrible political <laughs> violence that's yes. happening. <laughs> what also keeps it fun is hope. <laughs> and uh, we'll be seeing in the next episode some interesting stuff in terms of trying to be a positive force in this time. We see in the promo for next week that they're at an immigration protest and Kara is wearing the robe that we saw that she got from Argo as sort of a display of her heritage. Which is cool because we haven't seen her find too many opportunities to acknowledge herself as Kara Zorel mm -hmm. within the context of her life on Earth. So that should be fascinating yeah. to see. And I wonder if it will also help put some distance between people wondering what Supergirl does in her off time. Because if she's just like, I'm out here living my life as an alien, hmm. there's also less reason for people to be like, so who is Supergirl? <laughs> yeah. But I was really excited when I saw set photos. Mm. It was like just her arm at first. I was like, that's the robe. And I've been excited <laughs> about it ever since. And um, it should be an awesome image to see. I'm looking forward to it as well because of the connection to the immigration protests. Because back, we talked about this in a previous podcast episode, Back in the summer, the cast and the writers and showrunners were very vocal about all the morally wrong things that have been happening in the way the United States has handled immigration. And they were specifically connected to the immigration protests that happened in June. So I am looking forward to seeing how they kind of pull that into this next episode, too, especially because the title of it is going to be Stand and Deliver, which comes from a movie about kind of inspiring people to live up to their potential, despite the fact that as minorities, they're immediately assumed of doing something wrong and they get in trouble. Mm. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with all of these concepts. Yeah. And hopefully some positive messages. I was really into the whole message of this episode of that you can only do what you feel is right. It's sort of a nice way to simplify a really complicated situation that you have to navigate. But for now, we will see you guys next week for Stand and Deliver. Thanks for listening.